Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Please join me in welcoming our television and webcast viewers to today's program. My name is Jennifer Sloan. I'm the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto, and we thank our viewing audience for being with us. The Canadian Club has a long history as the leading current affairs podium in Canada. Led by a volunteer board of directors, we are dedicated to encouraging open and accessible debate on issues that matter to Toronto, to the province, and to Canada. Through our Youth and Young Leaders programs, Civic Action Diversity Partnerships, accessibility commitments, as well as through our media properties and social media partnerships, we provide opportunities for Canadians around the world to engage with leading political, business, and public figures. Thank you for joining our conversation today. Before I formally introduce our speakers, I'd like to tell you about some of our upcoming events this season. On April 8th, the Globe and Mail's editor-in-chief, David Walmsley, will be examining the definition of journalism in the 21st century, the issue of trust in society, and the necessary criteria to deliver success. On April 15th, come find out how New Brunswick's newest and Canadians, uh, Canada's youngest premier, Brian Gallant, plans to move the province of New Brunswick forward with a more diverse economy, spurred on by major projects like the Energy East Pipeline and investments in mining. And on April 28th, we are proud to recognize one of this country's most distinguished Canadians, the Right Honourable Paul Martin, with our 2014 Lifetime Achievement Award, an award that celebrates the lifelong efforts and leadership of extraordinary Canadians. For a full listing of the club's upcoming events and to order tickets, please visit our website at canadianclub.org. You can also join the conversation via Twitter and Instagram by following us at CDNCLUBTO or by using that hashtag. I'd like to express special thanks to today's event sponsor, Scotiabank, represented here by Gillian Riley. Gillian, thank you so much for your support. Ladies and gentlemen, on your behalf, I'd please to introduce today's topic and the panel of experts who are considered pioneers of social innovation. They are adept at harnessing resources to drive social change and corporate social responsibility. Moderating this important conversation is Mr. Rudyard Griffiths. You may recall that the co-founder of the Dominion Institute did a masterful job of leading a conversation on philanthropy here at the club last April. He is a social entrepreneur, author, and Canadian television anchor. Mr. Griffiths also serves on the executive committee of the board of His Highness, the Aga Khan Centre for Global Pluralism. 
In addition, he is President and CEO of the Peter and Melanie Monk Foundation, one of Canada's largest private charitable trusts. Joining Mr. Griffiths are Stephen Huddard, President and Chief Executive Officer of the J.W. McConnell Family Foundation, a private foundation based in Montreal. Prior to joining the foundation, he worked with children's singer Rafi as executive director of the Troubadour Music Inc. and the nonprofit Troubadour Institute. Jill Schnur, Vice President, Community Affairs, TELUS. Since joining TELUS in 1992, Ms. Schnur has been recognized for her leadership in community investment and engagement. She received a Leadership Excellent Award for Innovation from the Canadian Women in Communications in 2011. Michael Wilson, Managing Director, Corporate Citizenship, Accenture. He has more than 23 years of extensive experience in defining and implement, implementing transformational change for public service organizations. Mr. Wilson also serves on the Infrastructure Committee of the Toronto Board of Trade. Before I relinquish the podium, I want to invite our live audience here to join the conversation by filling out the question cards on your table. Our, one of our volunteers will come around to collect them during the discussion. And now, without further delay, please join me in welcoming Mr. Griffiths and our expert panelists to the Canadian Club of Toronto, Canada's podium of record. Thank you uh, so much for that uh, kind introduction. We're going to get our uh, esteemed panel here on the stage um, and uh, look around this uh, room and acknowledge uh, really the phenomenal turnout uh, for this event. Let's sit. We'll be uh, informal. Uh, last year we had a terrific crowd, and I think it, it just speaks to the growing uh, interest in innovation within uh, philanthropy. Um, this is a sector undergoing significant change. Uh, that change has brought new pressures uh, and new challenges. Um, and what I want to try to do with this panel over the next uh, 30 or 35 minutes is um, kind of go beyond the buzzword of social innovation. Uh, we've heard this phrase a lot. Uh, I'm not entirely sure uh, what it means. We, we hope our panelists uh, know because uh, that's why they're here. <laughs> Um, you know, innovation itself is a real challenge, uh, a hard problem to solve. And then when you attach the word social to that, what, what are we really uh, talking about? I think when we speak about innovation and technology, uh, we know what that's about. It's about applying very discrete, specific areas of human knowledge uh, to practical real-world problems and using technology to solve those problems. Uh, in the world of, of finance and business, innovation is bringing uh, human and physical capital uh, to bear on investment and other opportunities to, again, uh, realize revenue and profits. Uh, in politics, uh, innovation is telling voters one thing and, and doing something else. But I regress. I won't, uh, I won't go there. But what I'm getting at is I think with social innovation, this is not um, a product or a result. It's a process. It's a process that involves uh, taking uh, the resources of society, individuals, communities, corporations, charities, 
and bringing those resources together in collaborative and creative ways to address uh, societal problems and challenges in a sustainable fashion. Uh, that's the definition I would give to it. And to, to begin to peel back this, uh, to peel this onion of social innovation, to find out what is at its core, I, I asked our panelists to come prepared today to, to answer our first question, and then we'll take the discussion uh, where it goes from there. And, and that question was, I hope you all got my email, um, that question was, uh, how, in your own practice, uh, where have you seen really state-of-the-art social innovation? I, I don't want the theory. I want what you've actually seen that works. And tell us a little bit about why it worked and why you thought it was best in class. And, and let's try to be, again, as specific and real-world uh, as possible. And Stephen, I want to start with you and the McConnell Foundation. Sure. Great. I know this and, is uh, uh, a big part of, of the work that you're doing great. with the foundation. Thank you very much. It's such a pleasure to be here and see so many friends and colleagues in the room. Um, I want to begin to answer your question. Thank you for uh, just a moment to plug this book, which, uh, there, for which of which there is a copy for everyone here, because I think that the way we're looking at social innovation, the way we need to and can and are as a country, is to begin with the thoughtful reflections about where we are and where we've come from. This particular book happens to be a compilation of interviews with thoughtful Canadians about those questions, and I think no more appropriate place, place than to bring this. It's just been printed. We just got it from the printers, and so I invite all of you to reflect on the very challenging but also very hopeful messages contained in this volume. Um, to speak more directly to the question of social innovation, I think we can look at two broad trends here. On the one hand, we're talking about the parts of society that are broken, that are dysfunctional, that are vulnerable, the things that aren't working. And we, we do sense, and it's certainly evident in this, in this volume that I've mentioned, that Canada's at a point of some precarity. Things that we value seem to be at risk. Uh, our values are, are being questioned, our, our position internationally. There's a whole lot that's not quite where it was and that we don't quite seem to be grappling with very well. So part one then if, is just to say, let's acknowledge where we are. And one of the places where we are is we are in the era of reconciliation with Aboriginal peoples in this country. That is such a profound contextual contextualization for all the work we do. And it's a place where social innovation has to start, in fact, is starting to work. So finance is involved, social systems are involved, collaboration across cultures is involved. So all of that represents the, the rich ground where social innovation is happening, and I think the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission is guiding that. The next part is if we move away from the issues to the capacity that we have, particularly in the social sector, but also in, corporate, in the corporate and government sectors, it's about building those capacities, building those uh, instruments and uh, using data and finance and so on. And so uh, social innovation that we're involved with, uh, with many partners in the room, is called InnoWeave, which is about transferring capability to work on complex challenges and in social innovation into the social sector using technology partners, program partners, government and private sector uh, and foundation partners to effectively invest in the capacity of the social sector to do this kind of work. So just get, give us a, a specific example of, of sure. that knowledge transfer of what yeah, it's so like. Yeah, so one of the modules on the Inuweave platform is called the Impact and Strategic Clarity Module, and it takes organizations through a process of clarifying what they're about. 
two examples of organizations that came through that. One is the Canadian Arthritis uh, Foundation Association that realized that it's actually, in addition to advocacy and research, knows a lot about helping people manage chronic pain. So as a result, they're setting up a social enterprise that will train 5,000 paraprofessionals in the health sector to help people manage uh, and, and cope with the, the symptoms associated with arthritis. So it's adding a layer of uh, innovation and social enterprise to its own work while adding resilience and uh, strength to the health system overall. Another organization that went through this process was the Canadian Institute for Advanced Research, which works on humanity's greatest problems, pairing Canadian researchers with those uh, around the world. And they realized as they went through this process that they actually have a an untapped opportunity to engage the people who could use that research at the beginning of the process when they're asking those questions. So rather than the old model, which is publish the research and hope somebody reads it, it's get the people who could use it and for whom it's important in the room at the beginning. So you see in these two examples, we're seeing a change in uh, how people view the problem or the challenge, a change in resource flows and, a, and, and commitments to the issue, that are basically delivering new value into uh, what were uh, static situations. We can't afford the status quo. We have to innovate our way forward out of this. And so we can only do that with corporate and government partners. Great. I'm going to go to Michael uh, next. Jill, I'm going to give you a little more time. You didn't get my email, so I'm going, to, I'm going to give you another couple minutes here to think about your answer. Michael, you're at Accenture. You're advising a variety of, uh, of clients about this. You've developed some real core expertise, what do you see out there that's really working and try to be as specific as possible in terms of projects that exemplify best practices and in social innovation? Yeah, well, the, the format that comes to mind um, is something called NPower. Um, and I think it exemplifies a lot of the things that we think are important and I think a lot of feel are important in making this successful. So NPower um, started in Toronto at Chapters in the first stage right now where they've gone through a process of selecting youth who are from disadvantaged communities who basically are putting, putting them through a apprentice training uh, for specific technology skills. So that program started up um, earlier, I guess, in the fall, and going now into an internship with graduation in April. And it's a great example of a lot of factors which I can talk about. Um, one is outcomes. Um, the real focus for, for Accenture and a lot of the work we've been doing is to make sure that there's clear measurement of focus. And Accenture has decided to focus a lot on skills to succeed, getting people the skills to be successfully employed. So with organizations like NPower, they've done this work in uh, New York and have proven an 87% conversion rate. So if the, the students they take in, 87% get successful, sustainable jobs. And these are kids that come from, you know, very tough backgrounds. Uh, the other thing, too, that's really interesting about this partnership is it brings together all the different um, aspects of our community. Uh, a view we have is, is it's interesting for one organization or one entity to do something, but the real power kicks in when we all collaborate. And when we look at how this came to be, the civic action, which we're all familiar with, I think, in this room, um, it came out of a study, which Accenture also helped support with civic action to help tackle youth employment in the city, of course, a critical topic here. Um, but also there were other partners that came to the table to make this successful. Ryerson offered space. Uh, uh, TD Bank is a member of, the, of the, the group. United Way is a part of this. So we're seeing a whole range of different partners now come together to bring resources, expertise to really contribute to that success. And then finally, you know, 
setting these things up has to be sustainable and scalable because it's one thing to set it up, but you want to set it on a path where it can start making a more of a multiplier impact. I had the pleasure of going down to New York where I saw that result. And I'm really confident, based on the patterns we're following here in Toronto, we can then set this up for many more classes of, of kids that we can help bring to that type of success. Great. So we're, we're hearing from Stephen about the importance of process, from Michael about measurable results and outcomes that can be tracked and identified. Jill, uh, tell us your no doubt confronted with an endless series of opportunities that you could or should support. What really, what gets you and your colleagues excited, uh, you know, about a social innovation project? What are the, what are the flags that need to come up before uh, you're willing to kind of commit resources and time? Well, I think from a corporate social innovation perspective, what that really means is that, you know, we're pivoting our resources and our business models and our strategies to now focus on much more complex societal issues and try to address and approach and solve those issues through our core business. And I think that's very different from how business has operated in the past, right? It used to be, you used to have the business sector and then you'd have the philanthropy sector and, you know, never the two shall meet. The business sector used to fund the, the, the not-for-profit sector, but I think you're seeing you know, social innovation start to bridge those two. And I think you're seeing uh, corporations take on responsibility now to drive social innovation so that we don't just have to build capacity in the not-for-profit sector, we build capacity across all sectors, because that's how we'll get it done. But I, I wanted to talk about an, an example specifically that we're doing uh, at TELUS. And many of you know us as a telecommunications company, uh, well, well, many of our competitors in telecommunications have gone into the content business, and so they've purchased, you know, entertainment companies, content companies, um, as part of their core business. We specifically decided not to do that uh, because we looked at that particular sector uh, and we said, you know what, it's it's highly regulated. Uh, content is really moving to be accessible to all. Uh, as well as it's, um, it's about a, a $5 billion business within Canada. So we decided specifically not to go into that business and instead refocused and pivoted our resources to focus on the healthcare sector. And uh, many of you may not know that TELUS has been rated the number one healthcare technology provider in Canada for the last five years. We have uh, 15,000 physicians using our electronic healthcare records. Uh, we have 4,000 pharmacies using uh, our uh, pharmaceutical records. Uh, we have 15,000 Canadians that, that leverage our back-end systems to be able to you know, make their health claims uh, and to track their medications and things like that. And so we made that specific decision that we wanted to not just offer internet and networks and telecommunications, but we wanted to legitimately transform the healthcare industry to make it more sustainable in the long run, to achieve better health outcomes for Canadians across the country, to enhance people's quality of life, because with technology and what we're able to offer, we can work with the ministries of health all across uh, the country. We, can, we work with universities to do research on how to better manage your chronic disease. We work with pharmacies so that we can avoid uh, people taking the wrong medication, which actually results in thousands of deaths across the country because they're just mixing the wrong medications. We can avoid that now with our technology and with that access to information. And we're working with not-for-profits like the Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation on joint research where we can um, 
number one, help to try and find a cure for diabetes, but number two, just help people better manage their diabetes on a day-to-day basis. Or parents help their kids with type 1 diabetes. Um, And they can do that all through their smartphone and through better connections to their uh, clinicians and to their doctors. Stephen, I'd like you to just pick up what you've heard so far. Is there a theme here that you feel connects to your work looking at really through the lens of the professional foundation? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I think one of the things, first of all, just to to Jill's point, is that humanity and technology are co-evolving these days. There are tremendous opportunities opening up in front of us to apply uh, media, social media, databases, and so on to solving social problems. We talked about smart cities for a long time, but we're now able to talk about smart social systems. Uh, let's move from uh, funding end-of-pipe solutions, which are expensive and which we really are never going to be able to afford, to moving upstream to early intervention and moving the, the systems that currently serve end-of-pipe solutions upstream is really it's saving money, it's improving lives, and it actually improves the economy because we create a, a level of social productivity that is kind of the un- under-examined phenomena in our, all of our discussions about uh, productivity, innovation, and so on. There are these things that we just don't look at very carefully that when we do, from an entrepreneurial or a social innovation perspective, yield new, social, new, new business opportunities, but also create a more equitable society. Uh, a good example of this is with early child development, about which we know so much, and yet we're still fighting a group of foundations working together with academics, and yes, there is some leadership across the country, but we could be doing so much better. Uh, We see this also with uh, children's mental health, uh, an underdeveloped field in which early intervention has to be the solution. We can't, we simply can't afford to not do this, and so I think that use of technology with smart social systems, good data, which is increasingly available, but which the social sector has relatively little capability of using. We need to invest in in our collective capacity to use data. Uh, So I think all of that is really powering uh, what we would see as another wave of of social innovation in the country. We have technology partners like Cisco here who are uh, doing tremendous work at distributing at very low cost, high quality education and health uh, services to remote communities. Canada ought to be, and it is in some respects, a leader in this respect. So I think we've got a lot to do and a lot to work with. Michael, I'm still, I'll be here, because I'm still trying to understand where the innovation piece is. I'm, I'm hearing a lot about problems being solved in smart ways. Uh, we've kind of always done that, or we've always tried to do that. So talk to me a little bit more about what's the innovation piece? What is really new in 2014 versus, I don't know, five or 10 years ago in terms of how we're approaching innovation in the social sector? Well, I'm not sure I can comment five years ago, but um, some of the things we feel are, are innovative is, is really back to this outcome and measurement focus. It has to be about the results. Um, and we've worked a lot with uh, the different uh, organizations we support to really help them establish the framework for that. And quite frankly, some of them weren't capable of doing it. We had to end our relationship with them. And really what we've seen now is through that focus, it really is driving results. Accenture, for example, set a global target back in 2012 of equipping a quarter million people globally with skills to succeed. Um, we exceeded that goal within a year. Uh, we upped it just recently to 700,000. We exceeded it to 800,000 just recently. And we just this week published the new goal, which will be 2020 to have 3 million people with skills to succeed. So the, the, 
So for us, measurement starts at the top, the outcomes are focused, we're singularly focused, and we align our partners to make sure that goal. And you start seeing staggering impact uh, in terms of those type of outcomes. We're seeing real measurable impact in terms of the skills of people, and people getting new jobs, not just in Canada, around the world. And, and when you keep that focus, we believe it's, it has the impact and the innovation you need. The other thing, too, is just from an Accenture's point of view, uh, we are a global consultancy, a technology firm. So really, it's, it's not about us just writing a check. Um, we, uh, we, we take our own core competencies and apply it to help these, these, these groups. There, there's a table over here from Accenture who's right now working with United Way to do a uh, donor analytics project, so really to look at helping them better target and segment right? um, donors, obviously, to maximize funds. Um, that's the stuff Accenture does. Um, you know, these are the people that are experts in that, and they brought it forward. So by bringing our core capabilities, it's not just about writing checks, bringing the expertise and innovation to help them be successful. So those are a couple of the factors that, that we see are a little different in really getting to the results that we think are, are important to really showing success. And Jill, is, is capacity a problem? Because I, what I'm hearing you all talk about sound like fairly complicated uh, solutions to complicated problems. I mean, that makes sense, but there's a lot of moving parts here. It sounds like the organizations who are participating in this space have to be able to perform and function at a certain standard. So is that a challenge in Canada in terms of finding partners who can you know, achieve at this level with the types of outcomes and metrics that Michael wants to see? I, I think there's many partners out there that are doing great things in this space. And I, and I think that's the whole foundation of social innovation is it's all about connected difference. So so you are, you are um, being able to address social issues through new ideas and new collaborations, new relationships that weren't there before. And that's the whole power of it is we're able to bring certain power, skill sets, abilities to the table. Um, and, and we need to work with other partners that can then sort of fulfill on that entire mandate. Rather than, I think in the past, you know, we've, we've funded uh, charities and not-for-profits to build capacity entirely themselves. And that can be really challenging sometimes when, in fact, you know, we have capacity in a particular area that we could support and help and provide. We just need to better leverage it, right? Um, and it's challenging sometimes, too, because I have, you know, many charities that approach us for funding to build capacity, for instance, in the communications or technology area, um, but then potentially they then use that funding to go to a competitor to do it. So instead of doing that, why not just come to us We'll partner with you on the initiative, and we'll provide the stuff we're good at. You don't then need to build capacity from the very beginning. And, and I think those are the type of partnerships we start to look for, where you can be strong in many areas um, and come to the table and be able to deliver. Now, Stephen, none of you have mentioned the dreaded G word, government. And uh, what, what does that mean? I mean, the, maybe somebody in this audience, a, a potential critic, is saying, this is all very disempowering to government. This is taking power ultimately away from citizens who are making choices through elections and through their democratic institutions to decide how governments should roll out social programs to address social needs. And, and you're in fact, in a sense, kind of outsourcing a lot of this to private philanthropy, to boards of private individuals, to boards of private corporations. 
Well, it's, a, it's an important question, and I think we can't have this conversation about social innovation without considering government and government's role. Um, there's no doubt when we look across Canada at conditions of fiscal restraint and of the aversion to political risk-taking, that uh, that and the, the electoral, the four-year electoral cycle, those structures are actually mitigating against our ability to engage all of us, the plural sector, if we can call it that, in addressing these issues. We have to build collaboration across uh, the social sector with the private sector and involve government. They've got a lot to contribute, uh, but we can't leave this to government. Uh, we have uh, the largest, second largest social sector in the world but on a per capita basis. We donate and government contributes a lot to this sector so as to create the ability to innovate and adapt and create better social outcomes. So we are, in fact, playing a role that is supported by government, by voters and taxpayers, and we're often increasingly partnering with government on what they would view as their biggest challenges. So that's not only on program delivery, it's also on innovations around how we work together. So the appearance of solutions labs, for example, which government is in a great position to support, but which creates space for people around a system to come together and thoughtfully develop prototypes that can be tested and, and supported uh, in going to scale is another role for government to play. Government has huge amounts of data that it could be releasing and is to a certain extent, but supporting work in capacity and sort of the capacity of people to use this data. So Canada signed the, the global protocol on open data, but we don't see much there in terms of support for the social sector to work with it. So there's an opportunity there to, to do more with less. Um, but government is currently key to solving a lot of these problems. Great. Michael, you wanted to come in on this? Yeah, I want to come a bit on, on uh, maybe think about our employees are also citizens in their communities. And what we've, we've, we've been learning through the last few years is the, the people that work for us, they want to deepen that connection back to their community. And in fact, it's in many ways an untapped resource that we've been, I think, successfully untapping. And really, it's not about just writing checks, too. If you, if you look at people who are in their 20s and 30s, they want to contribute in a way that's meaningful, heartfelt, back to their communities. And what we've been doing is, is just creating a process that allows that engagement. So um, our own staff will engage with agencies or charities of their choice within the guidelines we set. They will develop the proposals themselves and through a competitive process, they bring it forward to us for what we call a dragon's den, ultimately, where we review and select proposals, which ultimately will get the best proposals, the best quality. But at the same time, it's a way of really, from the ground up, getting our, our employees to really engage actively in community and represent those things that are of interest. And we find that we've got very, very compelling um, participation rates now from our employees in terms of uh, these various activities. Uh, Jill, let's hear from you on this whole kind of where is government in this? Where is accountability within the larger uh, space of social innovation? Yeah, I mean, I think governments have to play a key role uh, in anything that we, that we do. I, I think, um, you know, to, to Stephen's point, governments are sort of inherently risk-averse. Um, and it's because, you know, when you consider the fact that they provide uh, very essential services to millions of people every day, um, it's very tough for them to consider dramatic innovation 
in a sense that what if something happens and they're not able to deliver those? You know, there's there's rhetoric about the fact that government is essentially broken and not able to rise to the challenge of the 21st century, but it's because they deliver, you know, that welfare check every single, you know, week that it's needed, um, and they have to continue to do that. So I think it's important from a government perspective to partner with other people that have the capacity to be able to trial and test and fail, um, and then and then and do innovation labs, as Stephen also talked about, so that um, so that they can, you know, test ways that will, that will, you know, essentially provide innovation within the government. We're actually working with the government on a very cool initiative uh, that I love with Intellis, and that is, um, you know, we we want to provide low-cost, high-speed internet service to low-income families because we recognize that kids in Canada that don't have access to the internet um, actually have much lower graduation rates than compared to kids that do, and they also have a much harder time finding a job. And so, in order to bridge the digital divide. We're actually working with the government right now on being able to offer uh, high-speed internet access. And we're working with charities, such as Computers for Schools, to be able to provide the computer to the the residents, in this case, or to the family. And then we're working with libraries in order to provide the actual digital literacy training that you would need to to use the computer. So, So the government is a key partner in that because we wouldn't be able to identify low-income families without them. And they see the need for it, right? They see the desire. They want to work with us to make it happen. Um, and so uh, they're, they're, a, they're a key piece in anything that we do moving forward in that case. Great. So, um, Stephen, let's, let's talk a little bit about where you see this field going from here. It sounds like there's great potential, uh, fantastic projects that are overway, but scale mm-hmm. and impact still seem to be real challenges. Well, part of that certainly is working with governments and giving uh, the space and the time for prototyping of, of new and improved solutions so that governments uh, can take those solutions to scale once there's an evidence base for them. We do need to build in more capacity to collect evidence and to marshal the, the facts and the data around uh, social innovation as well as the narratives that go with that. Mm-hmm. So um, in addition, we're also talking about a, a shift in financing social outcomes. So the whole field of impact investing is emerging as we speak. Uh, we have promising uh, early uh, prototypes in this space with the Canadians, uh, the, the Centre for Impact Investing here in Toronto and foundations increasingly moving funds out of the stock market and into uh, aligned investing that's aligned with their grant-making purposes. So we see the potential to go to scale that way, uh, emerging globally and in Canada. Uh, we've also got the, uh, the lab processes that I mentioned that are being taken up in complex situations. Uh, we're in a partnership with the government of Manitoba around the challenge of inner-city Winnipeg, which is predominantly Aboriginal and has some terrible social outcomes. Um, we're prototyping things there with the community that have the potential to go to scale both in the city but across the country using social finance, social labs, uh, social innovation frame, and also supporting social enterprise. This is ultimately also about creating an economy that works for the next generation, for people who've been excluded from economic participation. So taken as a whole, social innovation has a number of aspects to it that show uh, some promise and that are evolving as we speak. Good. Uh, an audience question here for both uh, TELUS and Accenture. Uh, do you see opportunities and a willingness to work with companies who are potentially competitors 
but support the same social innovation goals and approaches that you have. So in other words, how proprietary is all of this at the end of the day? Jill, why don't you start? Yeah, you know what? Actually, it's interesting because we do a lot in the health space, and I'm sure many of you are aware that Bell does a lot uh, in the mental health space. And in fact, they're doing amazing things to help end the stigma associated with mental health and create a a conversation around it uh, so that it's okay to talk about it. We're also doing a lot of things um, in the mental health realm, and we're trying to look for ways to work together because at the end of the day, it's about having the social impact and the fact that we're competitors and, and in some cases, customers of one another, right? Mm-hmm. Bell is actually one of our biggest customers in the West, right, because they use our networks. Um, we're fi- trying to find ways to work together. And, and not only uh, our competition are we doing that with, but also our larger business customers. So, for instance, um, you know, in, in BC, Britco is a, is, a, is a business customer of TELUS. Uh, and they provide um, uh, mobile offices and mobile uh, buildings to construction sites. Specifically, they're working in Aboriginal communities along the pipeline, and um, they've come to us and said, you know, let's work together on having social impact in uh, northern BC. And so uh, we're providing access to these mobile offices. Um, These mobile buildings are being created, uh, that we're creating community libraries in Aboriginal communities and providing computers, access, and unbelievable, you know, interaction and and new learning environments now for the Aboriginal community in the north. So whether it's your competition or your larger customers or your suppliers, I think there's so many opportunities now to work together. And and in, in that case, we're actually not working with a charity at this particular moment in time. Um, so it's really just the, the, the corporate sector that's driving social change in northern BC, which, which again talks to amazing social innovation. Great. Michael, let's hear from you on that point. Yeah, no, I, I, it, I agree 100%. It, it really is about driving a collaboration. And, and we do work with our competitors, our clients on many projects, like Future, Futurepreneurs, one of our, our agencies we support, Access, Junior Achievement. Um, so I, I think the thing is you just want to be in a situation where we're not duplicating core competencies, really. That's, that's what it's about. There's no sense Accenture investing effort if they already have that capability from someone else. But when it comes to the, the, the collaboration with our clients, this is what we believe has been the tremendous change by the focus we've taken, is now our conversations with our clients are very different. With TELUS, I know your CEO and my head of Canada talk regularly about some of the ideas we can do um, in the local marketplace. Uh, Loblaw is another major client of ours. So really, the opportunity here is to really relook at your relationships and redefine the conversation you have with your fellow corporations to really come together to make that impact. And we're seeing it in many ways right now. Great. Stephen, I'm going to give you uh, the last word just mm-hmm. to kind of wrap up the conversation and uh, share your final thoughts, and then we're going to just be conscious of uh, our time. Sure. So I think... You know, what we're looking at is uh, something that has, is creating new connections and new opportunities to create solutions right across the country in a variety of domains. We have to remember that uh, we are at this pivotal moment in history when, uh, because of climate, because of global economic pressures, demographic pressures, we have to come up with larger-scale solution sets. And we get there by innovating. Social innovation is uh, works with and across sectors and is 
calibrated to create the, the prototypes, the new ideas, the testable hypotheses, and to create opportunities for investment and for change in large systems. So that's really what we're looking at here. And it does require uh, thoughtful, well-structured, and enabled experimentation to happen because we're trying to figure our way forward through a very complex set of challenges. So it does take all sectors, including the foundation and community sector, but with government and private sector as well. So it is the work of our time, I think, that we're called to do. Great. What a, a great note to end on. Ladies and gentlemen, please thank our panel, Stephen, Jill, and uh, Michael. Thank you all. Uh, before I thank the panelists and our moderator, I want to give a special shout-out to my fellow Canadian club board member and co-conspirator in this venture, the unsinkable, the very unsinkable Villa Black of Cisco. Thank you, Villa. Thank you, Rudyard, for your probing, skillful moderation of this panel. You didn't give up. You kept asking them the question. I appreciate that. And of course, thank you to Stephen Haddard of McConnell, Jill Schnarr of TELUS, and Michael Wilson of Accenture for responding so generously in, from many different points of view. I think we've had a most interesting discussion today. Uh, times of change, disruption, complexity. What is the role of philanthropy in finding new solutions for new times? And I come away from this discussion as having worked in philanthropy for a very long time, uh, whereas in the olden days, if we can call them those, uh, there was an exchange of money from one institution to another, maybe strategically, but still an exchange of money. Uh, today, it is, an, it, it is really a, a new system of working and talking across sectors to arrive at, at scale and at systemic change. So thank you very much. We will carry on this conversation in 2016. Watch out for our next philanthropy panel. Thank you. Thank you very much, Ratna, and I too would like to especially thank you and Willa for all the work that you did for today to make today such a great success. And thank you very much to our panel for an engaging and insightful discussion. Before I adjourn today's meeting, I'd like to draw your attention to the event survey card on each of your tables. The Canadian Club is always looking for ways to improve your experience. So please take a moment to let us know your thoughts and comments, including whether you like our new shortened luncheon format this season. Your feedback is very much appreciated. Our sincere, our sincere thanks again to today's event sponsor, Scotiabank, for making the event possible. This concludes our program today, which will be broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We'd like to thank MediaEvents.ca, Canada's online event space, for live webcasting today's event. We're also grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian club events. Again, to learn more about the club, please visit us at www.canadianclub.org. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you all for joining us. Our meeting is now adjourned. Mm -hmm.